welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her recent story about state superintendent of schools, Ryan Walters, is the latest in an ongoing partnership with The Frontier. Jennifer, uh, Ryan Walters was sworn in Monday as the new state superintendent of public instruction. What was his job before that? So his role with the state before that was Secretary of Education, which is an appointed position by the governor. But he also was the executive director of a nonprofit called Every Kid Counts Oklahoma. Uh, sometimes we know uh, goes by its initials, Echo, right? What Tell us about Echo. What is it? Well, like I said, it's a nonprofit organization formed just a couple of years ago um, and kind of came out of this uh, Oklahoma chamber, uh, state chamber initiative. And, um, you know, mostly what they did was um, advocate for school reform legislation. Now, uh, you reported in your story that Walters resigned from ECHO just before taking office, right? That's right. And uh, was there any question about whether he would resign that position? There was, actually. He had not publicly committed to resigning from that position. And there was this vote, which was actually what we were reporting on um, up until the resignation. In December, the nonprofit board of ECHO voted to keep him as executive director until they could find a replacement. Um, That vote was somewhat controversial. It was three to two. Uh, the two board members who voted no quit after that vote. And, um, you know, they at the time they could have voted to put in an interim, um, which is what they did on Sunday. But instead, they voted to keep him indefinitely. And it really looked like those roles would overlap. Can you uh, tell us a little more about that vote and the circumstances surrounding it? Well, I, I wish we knew more. Um, you know, Echo is a nonprofit it's not a public entity, so their agenda's not public, their meetings aren't public. Um, we have been trying to contact those board members for um, several weeks now um, to find out more about uh, what happened there. What we know is it was three to two. Uh, the three was to keep him, you know, um, in that position indefinitely. Would it have been a conflict of interest for Walters to keep it his job, uh, keep the job at Echo while serving as state superintendent? There are certainly many people who think so. Um, there is an AG opinion that says, um, you know, that that we were looking at that says state officers cannot be paid by another entity, and that was what it was looking like. You know, he receives a salary from Echo as executive director or did, um, and you know the. The, the goals of that organization really overlap in concerning ways with what he was supposed to do or what he is supposed to do as state superintendent. A lot of what ECHO did was, um, you know, push for policies and legislation that would um, send public money to private schools, 
you know, the job of state superintendent is to oversee the public schools. Well, what what is next for ECHO? Well, you know, two board members left, so they're down to three board members. Um, it was reported in the Oklahoman the other day that two uh, staffers quit, um, possibly related to this um, celebration, this um, party or, or um, event that they were having to recognize Walters as the new state superintendent. Um so they still haven't come out with their legislative goals for 2023, even though the session is about to start. So I don't know. We'll have to see um, what happens. Well, and uh, Jennifer, just one more question, uh, maybe for context, you could refresh our memory a little bit. You mentioned that uh, ECHO kind of grew out of a state chamber initiative at one point, but uh, didn't it sit relatively dormant uh, for a while where um, they only had to file the IRS postcard, their revenues were uh, below the threshold for a number of years, uh, kind of until they hired Walters, right? And then uh, and then the the organization grew rather suddenly, as I recall. Yeah, so that was kind of a different uh, nonprofit that they had formed. The state chamber initiative was called Oklahoma Achieves, and they actually wound that down, and but kind of moved the um, uh, the purpose into another nonprofit that had sat dormant. That they then changed the name and turned it into Echo. And that uh, changing the name and turning it into Echo uh, kind of coordinated with Walter's arrival. Was that right? Right around there? Pretty much. He did serve as uh, executive director of Oklahoma Chiefs for a very short time. Um, The former director is Jennifer Moneys, and she came on to Echo as a board member. So there is that overlap. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer's story about... Uh, Echo and Ryan Walter's departure as its executive director under some uh, circumstances that have raised a couple eyebrows uh, before his swearing in as state superintendent of public instruction uh, on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure also to subscribe to Jennifer's weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he reported on one lawmaker's proposal to set an end-of-the-year deadline for the state to fully launch online voter registration. Keaton, when did the state legislators uh, approve online voter registration? That happened in 2015, so we're coming up on eight years now of the legislation passing, and yet it's still not uh, doing what it was fully intended to do. Uh, It's funny, uh, David Holt, who was in the state Senate at that point, was the bill's sponsor, and he's now gone on. He's better known as the mayor of Oklahoma City now, Uh, so it's taken quite a while. What what are some of the benefits of having an online system? I think just the biggest one is convenience. You know, at this point in 2023, so much of what we do is uh, virtual, you know, ordering food, doing whatever. Um, And so just being able to have a system where uh, you can do all of your voter registration online without having to print off a form or mail it in, that sort of thing, uh, certainly helpful. Uh, Most states at this point have it. So um, just the convenience can lead to, to higher civic engagement in, in a lot of cases. 
Why has it taken so long for the system to uh, be fully launched here? There, there have been a lot of uh, technical difficulties. Uh, the way the bill is written, um, the it's required for these the application online to be cross-referenced. You need to have like a state ID and it has to be cross-referenced with the Department of Public Safety's system and building the infrastructure to do that has um, taken quite a while. Um, and there's been a lot of hiccups with that. So um, trying to get that in order has, has dragged it on. You mentioned most other states uh, already have an online registration system and that uh, we've been working on it for eight years. How how far has that caused Oklahoma to fall behind in the national picture? I believe when they passed the law in 2015, it was around half of states had it at that point. And now that it's been seven or eight years, uh, Oklahoma's now in the, the last 10 or so states that haven't um, gotten to that point. So in, in the span as they've been trying to build the system out, um, We've seen 15 or so other states get get their pass laws and get their systems up and running. Who sponsored the bill to uh, set a launch deadline and and why? So it was uh, State Senator Julia Kurt, for a Democrat from Oklahoma City, and she told me uh, it's just because she's been frustrated that it's taken so long. Obviously, Oklahoma has has struggled to. Uh, get voter turnout at the level of some other states. And she believes this would be a helpful tool for that. And um, also believes that if, if there's a deadline, it might create some, some urgency and get it um, out sooner uh, than otherwise would. And why did she pick December 31st? Uh, so one, she told me that uh, that would be a good day because if you're trying to launch it, say, in March when the 2024 presidential primaries are, or um, during another, you know, closer to the 2024 election, um, you might see a higher surge of people. And if there are any issues that come up that might be more difficult to deal with, rather than launching it kind of in a period between elections where you might not get the same surge coming at the same time, and you can uh, work that out. So uh, that, that was what she told me. Well, you contacted the state election board uh, to talk about Kurt's bill. What did they have to say? Uh, they they basically said that, you know, we we want this. We're excited about this. But putting a deadline on it uh, could jeopardize security. Um, if you're going to put something out there, they want it to be well tested and um, withstand any kind of issues and uh, they told me that there are in in the process of testing the final round of the system. Um, of course, at this point, the the first round was um, being able to uh, change your address online, view a sample ballot, um, fill out the form online, but you have to print it out and deliver it to your county election board. That's kind of the final step we're talking about. Um, so that they are testing that final step. They tell me, but they're they're concerned that if there's a deadline that uh, could cut some corners and, and not be the best product. Are there any indications uh, so far about the the likelihood of Kurt's bill passing? Uh, we're still very early in the process. Uh, the session doesn't start for another three weeks or so. Um, the bill deadline, the bill filing deadline is next week. So um, obviously it has to go through committees and um, it, 
there's the question of if it will even be assigned to a committee um, to be heard. Um, you know, obviously with the, the Democrats having a, a, a slight minority in the legislature, it can be it can be uh, difficult to even get to the point of getting a bill on a committee. Um, but it will it will be something to watch for sure. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read Keaton's story about Senator Kurt's bill to get Oklahoma's online voter registration uh, system up and running sooner rather than later, as well as all his other work on the topic of democracy in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Reporter Paul Monies was with his Oklahoma Watch colleagues, Whitney Bryan and Keaton Ross, at this week's inauguration of Governor Kevin Stitt and other elected officials. Paul, this is uh, Governor Stitt's second and, and last inauguration as Oklahoma governor. Give us a quick recap on how he got here. That's right. Yeah. So Governor Stitt uh, ran for election last, last year and... Um, had some primary opponents in June, uh, took care of those pretty handily, and then uh, faced former Republican Joy Hoffmeister in the November election. Uh, it was a pretty contentious campaign. Um, you know, the polls were kind of all over the map, uh, and there was a lot of dark money spending um, in that campaign, uh, hammering Stitt on some of the scandals and administration in his first term. But he ended up winning by 13 points in November. Uh, he ran on uh, his caretaker of the economy coming out of COVID, uh, budget surpluses, and education changes. And uh, what themes did Stitt touch on in his inaugural speech? Yeah, so his speech was kind of broad strokes of, of themes that he he's stuck with in the campaign. I mean, he's he's campaigned on being the top 10 state, which is an aspirational goal, he's admitted, but still something he wants to take care of in several areas. Uh, he also talked about the state's turnaround in its finances. Um, you know, he's started took office and we had some several years of down budgets and budget deficits and, and um, shortfalls. We've now got surpluses. Um, he's also talked about his focus for the next four years in terms of the economy, education changes, and uh, a focus still on liberty and limited government. How did uh, this ceremony compare to the one four years ago? Yeah, so 2019, it was a pretty chilly day uh, for that inauguration the first time around. It was very cold. Everyone was wearing blankets on the stages. Luckily, there was no precipi precipitation or any other weather. This time, it was bright and breezy and very windy. Uh, in fact, there were several times before the ceremony, chairs were blowing over before they were people were seated on them, so they had to kind of make sure they were um, back up before the, the, the crowd came out to the, the stage. Um, this time around, too, also he kind of, um, he stuck to kind of themes that he he ran on and, and governed under, um, rather than kind of the, the new guy in the block in 2019. It was kind of a fresh-faced uh, businessman coming on the scene. He's now got four years of a record and experience, and is a little bit more realistic about what he can do in terms of uh, governor. Any uh, surprises at the inaugural? Uh, not any huge surprises. Um, some people were kind of interested to see that several tribal leaders did join him uh, in, the, in the audience on stage, and he noted their presence, although it didn't really go into detail about some of the strife he's had with some of the tribes over some of the issues with uh, the McGirt decision and other issues on, on tribal gaming compacts. Um, you know, there were some, some lighthearted moments. There was some... Um, 
songs and by some of the local schools uh, around the state. And it was a big focus for, for this time around, too, was he had a big education focus. He called out several schools in attendance uh, with their students there and had some songs by the Santa Fe South Choir, um, as well as uh, towards the end of his speech, uh, there was a flyover by the 138th uh, uh, fighter wing from Tulsa and the Air National Guard. And that took a lot of people by surprise. That wasn't back in 2019. That didn't happen. Now, uh, there's always some uh, talk after a, a speech like that. What did the Democratic leaders have to say? That's right. Yeah. So the Democratic uh, House leader, House Minority Leader Cindy Munson, um, has started uh, basically put out a press release saying that um, she hoped to work together with the governor. You know, the Democrats are, are quite a minority in the House and the Senate. But Munson said that, um, you know, Stitt's top 10 goals um, haven't really made much headway in his first term. And there's a long way to go to include a lot of the state pulling along into, you know, the same type of progress together rather than focus on special interest groups. Now, uh, session starts here in about three weeks. What's next for the legislature and the governor between now and the start of session? That's right. So lawmakers have already started filing bills, pre-filing bills, and they had an organizational day last week where they formally um, elected House Speaker Charles McCall um, and then also the, the Senate pro tem, Greg Treat. And the bill filing deadline is coming up quickly. It's January 19th, and so there'll be a flood of bills coming out then that we'll see and kind of get set the tone for this year's session. Um, and the session, of course, starts on February 6th. Now, you mentioned setting the tone for this year's session. Uh, any idea what what kind of the focus uh, will be this year that, that we're going to hear a lot about? Yeah, and, and in contrast to his inaugural speech, the, the state will probably lay out more of his policy agenda in his state of the state when the session opens on February 6th. Uh, now, some of the, lawmak the lawmaker leaders have already talked about their goals for the session. Uh, you know, they've talked about tax cuts. We'll possibly see a revision of uh, discussions on cutting the state share of the grocery sales tax, uh, as well as possible income taxes. Uh, cuts and then of course school vouchers, which were dominated the session last year and didn't get past the line, will obviously come up again this year, and they'll try again uh, to kind of get that piece of policy legislation passed as well. And then of course the big part will be how to spend or save our state's budget surplus. We now have about 3.2 billion dollars in additional money to spend. Uh, state and some legislative leaders have, have kind of focused on maybe a conservative approach and keeping that state savings account full. Uh, but, you know, as with any other budget surplus, there's going to be fights among how to spend that or how to save it. And we're going to see a lot of that this session, I'm sure. I, um, and uh, just since you mentioned that uh, rather hefty surplus, um, it, it, is the rainy day fund, uh, is that full as the $3.2 billion in addition to the rainy day fund? So that $3.2 billion is the rainy day fund, which is full and additional money they have just from extra revenue this past fiscal year that they expect to come in. And so it's a combination of the rainy day surplus fund, which says capped, being full and that spillover kind of revenue that they have to spend as well. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, Paul and colleagues' coverage about the inaugural as well as his ongoing coverage of state government on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.
This is Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. During the months of November and December, Oklahoma Watch is eligible for a matching grant from the Miami Foundation under their Newsmatch program. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar every single donation given to a nonprofit news organization like ours that's participating in the program. That means that if you donate $5 a month, we get a match for $60. They match the entire year. If you can offer $10 a month, they'll match the whole year's worth $120. For $50 a month, they'll match $300. Every nickel you give is matched by the Miami Foundation as long as we receive it between November 1st and December 31st. And as a bonus, if you happen to be a brand new donor, we get an additional grant if we reach 100 new donors in the last two months of the year. If you enjoy the work we do at Oklahoma Watch, if you appreciate our investigative reporting, our holding government officials accountable, take just a moment, please, and visit us at oklahomawatch.org. Find our support page and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you're comfortable doing. Every dollar of that will be matched. And if you're a new donor, we get a bonus on top of that. We're nonprofit. We don't sell ads. This is what keeps us going and what keeps our newsroom uh, keeping the public's business public. Thanks again.